Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the RPA family would like to wish you and your loved ones a very happy and safe holiday season. Oh yeah, we love you. Enjoy the show. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Good evening, this is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. We're continuing on with stories that I began last week. There is no more forbidding place on earth than Bouvet Island, which lies in the furthest reaches of the storm-wracked southern ocean. It's a speck of ice in the middle of a freezing vastness, a few square miles of uninhabited volcanic basalt groaning under several hundred feet of glacier, scraped raw by gales, shrouded by drifts of sea fog, and utterly devoid of trees, shelter, or landing places. What it does have is a mystery. Let's begin this tale at the beginning. 
Bouvet Island is appallingly isolated. The nearest land is the coast of Antarctica, a further 1,750 kilometers south, and it is slightly further than that to Cape Town and Tristan de Cunha. Indeed, as Rupert Gould put it in characteristic style, it is the most isolated spot in the whole world, a fact which anyone who cares to spend an instructive five minutes with a pair of dividers and a good globe can easily verify. Around Bouvet Island, it is possible to draw a circle of 1,000 miles radius, having an area of 3,146,000 square miles, or very nearly the size of Europe, which contains no other land whatsoever. No other point of land on the Earth's surface has this peculiarity. Yet for all this, the island has a rather interesting history. It was first discovered at a remarkably early date, January 1st, 1739, by the earliest of all polar explorers, the Frenchman Jean-Baptiste Bouvet de Lozier, after whom it was named. After that, however, the place remained lost for the next 69 years. Bouvet had fixed its position incorrectly in an era in which navigation was still largely by dead reckoning. The island eluded the efforts of even Captain Cook to find it, and it only turned up again in 1808, when it was relocated several hundred miles from the spot where its discoverers had placed it. There remained considerable doubt for the rest of the 19th century as to whether the islands of 1739 and 1808 were even the same place, for not even the highly competent James Ross in 1843 and again in 1845 could locate Bouvet in the prevailing foul conditions, which include a semi-permanent shrouding of thick sea mist and storms 300 days a year. The isle was not fixed on the nautical charts until 1898, when it was definitively relocated by the splendidly named Captain Kresch of the German survey ship Valdivia. The Germans were the first to actually circumnavigate the island. Bouvet had believed that it was simply the northern cape of the sought-for Terra Australis, the gigantic but illusory southern continent it was long imagined must exist in the southern hemisphere in order to counterbalance Eurasia. They reported that it was no more than five miles long by three miles wide, that at least nine-tenths of it was under ice, and that it was almost entirely surrounded by unscalable ice cliffs which rose up out of the sea well-nigh vertically to heights of up to 1,600 feet. But the Valdivas men, like most explorers who make their way to this most inhospitable of places, found it impossible to land. Heavy seas, soaring cliffs, and the absence of any coves or inlets make it too dangerous to approach Bouvet Island by boat in any but the calmest weather. The first explorers to actually make it ashore were Norwegians from the survey vessel Norvegia in 1927, led by a worthy successor to Captain Crash, the equally alliterative Harold Hornvelt. They were also the first to venture onto Bouvet's central plateau, which rises to about 2,500 feet above sea level and consists of a pair of glaciers covering the remains of a still active volcano. Hornvelt 
took possession of the island in the name of King Hakon VII, renamed it Bouvetoya, which means Bouvet Island in Norwegian. He roughly mapped it and left a small cache of provisions on shore for the benefit of any shipwrecked mariners. The Norwegians returned in 1929 and again a few years later when it was discovered that both their supply huts had been destroyed by the unremittingly hostile local weather. But after that, Bouvet was left pretty much in peace until 1955 when the South African government expressed interest in the possibility of establishing a weather station there. And the frigate Transvaal was sent south and she arrived off Bouvet on January 30th. It's here that the puzzle that concerns us comes gradually into focus. The South Africans sailed right around the island without finding any sign of the sort of large, flat platform on which a weather station might be built. But three years later, when the American icebreaker Westwind called it Bouvet on January 1, 1958, it discovered that a small volcanic eruption had apparently taken place since 1955 and vented lava into the sea on the northwesternmost part of the island. The eruption had resulted in the formation of a low-lying lava plateau measuring perhaps 400 yards long by 200 yards wide. Bouvet Island had grown, and though the Norwegians, with a certain lack of poetry, named the plateau the Nairoisia, meaning New Mound, real creative, they did so by scribbling the name onto their maps. No one actually went all the way to Bouvet to investigate. Fast forward six more years to 1964. The South Africans, who had finally gotten around to dispatching an expedition to take a look at the Nairoisia, sent two vessels to rendezvous at Bouvet on Easter Sunday. Their own supply ship, RSA, and the Royal Navy's Antarctic ice vessel, HMS Protector. The expedition waited for three long days for the chill winds howling across the Nairoisia to drop below their customary 50 knots. Until the 2nd of April, it was finally judged safe to attempt a landing by helicopter. One of the protector's pair of Westland whirlwinds then dropped a survey team on the Nairoisia. The man in charge was Lieutenant Commander Alan Crawford, a British-born veteran of the South Atlantic and it was he who made an unexpected find only a few moments after landing. There, wallowing in a small lagoon and guarded by a colony of fur seals, lay an abandoned boat, half swamped, its gunnels awash, but still in good enough condition to be seaworthy. What drama, we wondered, Crawford wrote in his notes, was attached to this strange discovery. There were no markings to identify its origin or nationality. On the rocks, a hundred yards away was a 44-gallon drum and a pair of oars with pieces of wood and a copper flotation or buoyancy tank opened out flat for some purpose. Thinking castaways might have landed, we made a brief search but found no human remains. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? 
I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. It was a mystery worthy of a Sherlock Holmes adventure. The boat, which Crawford described as a whaler or ship's lifeboat, must have come from some larger ship, but no trade route ran within a thousand miles of Bouvet. If it was a lifeboat then, what ship had it come from? What spectacular feat of navigation had brought it across many miles of sea? How could it have survived a crossing of the Southern Ocean? There was no sign it had ever borne a mast or sail or engine, but the solitary pair of oars that Crawford found would barely have been adequate to steer a heavy 20-foot boat. Most unnervingly of all, what had become of the crew? It's unfortunate that the shore party had practically no time to investigate their peculiar discovery. They were on Bouvet for only a short while, about 45 minutes, according to Crawford. And in that time, the men had to conduct a survey of the platform, collect rock samples, and fend off the attentions of aggressive male sea elephants who resented their intrusion. There was no time to explore the Nairoisia properly or to hunt for any further signs of life. Given these constraints, it is very unlikely that the brief search Crawford mentioned consisted of much more than walking a few yards from the lagoon in either direction and scouting for the most obvious signs of bodies or habitation. Nor does it appear that any subsequent visitors to the island continued the investigation. There is, in fact, no further mention of the mysterious boat, though Bouvet was visited again two years later in 1966 by a biological survey team whose members paid considerable attention to the lagoon. This group established that it was shallow, thick with algae, alkaline, thanks to the seal stuff, the seal droppings, and fed by meltwater from the surrounding cliffs. But if the lifeboat was still there, they did not mention it. In fact, nobody but Alan Crawford seems to have taken the least interest in the mystery. There was no contemporary newspaper coverage of the story, nor have any further details of the boat itself nor the items found on shore been able to be found. One or two further brief contemporary accounts of the landing do exist, apparently. No one, in short, seems to have asked how the boat came to be there. No one searched for any members of its crew, and no one attempted to explain what Crawford found. Pretty much all we have to go on then are a few scant lines of Crawford's, a sketchy knowledge of Bouvet Island's history, and some common sense conclusions regarding the likely behavior of shipwrecked mariners. With these, nonetheless, it is possible to construct at least three hypotheses that might explain the presence of the whaler. We look at the facts that we can establish. First, it's clear that the boat must have arrived on Bouvet at some point in the nine years between January 1955, when the Nairosia did not exist, and April 1964, when it did. That is a reasonably restricted time frame, nine years. And if the whaler really was a lifeboat, it ought to be possible to establish which ship it came from. Second, the protector shore party saw no sign of any camp or shelter, fire or food. Third, the presence of a heavy boat in a lagoon located at least 30 yards from the shore 
suggest either that he had reached the island with a full crew, enough to manhaul it over some pretty rough ground, or that it was put there by a smaller group who didn't plan to leave. Beyond that, all is speculation. And perhaps the strangest thing about this extremely strange incident is the handful of facts don't fully support any of the obvious theories. Looking at the possibility that the boat was what it appeared to be, a lifeboat from a shipwreck, would certainly be the most dramatic and romantic explanation, and it explains some of the things that Crawford noted. Why the whaler was in the lagoon. It was put there by men who had no way of tying it up securely on shore, and who weren't certain if they would need it again. And why a small pile of equipment was found close by. Who knows why Crawford's copper flotation or buoyancy tank had been opened out flat. But it sounds like the sort of thing a group of desperate men with very limited resources might do. The lifeboat theory probably offers the best explanation for the presence of only a single pair of oars on shore. Perhaps if there had originally been others, but they were lost overboard in the course of a terrible voyage. There are, however, plenty of things that don't fit the lifeboat hypothesis, and the most obvious is the lack of much equipment and the absence of bodies or a camp. There would be no good reason for a group of survivors to move away from the Nairosa. It is clear of snow, at least during the southern summer, and is the only large flat area of ground on the entire island. But if a party of survivors did stay in this small area and died there, then some trace of a campsite, not to mention signs of their bodies, ought to have been discovered, even in the most hasty search. Might a small group have moved on and died somewhere else on the island? That's unlikely. Bouvet's ice cliffs are high and highly prone to avalanche, so it would be very dangerous to attempt to move inland or to camp too close to any of the vertiginous rock faces that abound on the island. On top of that, the most obvious sources of food, Bouvet's seals and sea elephants, congregate on the Nairosa. There would be no real need to hunt elsewhere unless the survivors had been on the island for so long that they had wiped out the local animal population. And if that was the case, signs of a campsite ought to have been doubly obvious. The men would have surely left the remains of fires and sea elephant suppers. Just how likely is it anyway that a group of shipwrecked seamen would have made their way to Bouvet? Not only is the island remarkably hard to locate even in the best of circumstances, it also lies so far off the normal trade routes and is so notoriously barren that it's hard to imagine any group of men with any alternative would have made for it in any of but the most desperate of circumstances. Only a ship that went down to the west of Bouvet so that the prevailing currents would have swept lifeboats toward the island, and which did so within a few hundred miles of it at most, would be a likely candidate and any hypothetical wreck would certainly require that a competent navigator equipped with charts, instruments, and a huge degree of fortune was among the unhappy survivors. If the men in the lifeboat had had time to find their charts and sextants, however, they ought to have had time to have brought a good deal more equipment with them than Crawford discovered on the island. What sort of castaways, after all, make it to shore armed with nothing more than a barrel of water 
a pair of oars, and an empty copper tank. They survived in this accommodation for more than four months. Finally, and most significantly of all, why would any party of survivors, however well equipped, have left their boat floating in the lagoon? It was the only readily available source of shelter that they had on an island where, even in summer, the mean temperature hovers around zero. When one remembers what Ernest Shackleton's men did when they were stranded on Elephant Island a few years earlier, they turned over their boats and turned them into living quarters. It has to be admitted that the discovery of the boat in the lagoon is perhaps the strongest evidence that wherever the whaler came from, it was not the sole survivor of some grisly shipwreck. What then of other explanations? Less likely, but not altogether impossible, is the suggestion that the boat found its way to Bouvet Island without any men on board. It might have been lost during a shipwreck, overturned and ditched its crew, or simply been washed overboard in a storm. Then it drifted about the Southern Ocean, perhaps for years before being washed up on the island. This theory has the virtue of simplicity, and it certainly explains why the boat appeared so worn. There were no markings, remember, to identify its origin or nationality, not to mention the absence of any signs of life on shore. Other than that, though, the derelict hypothesis has little to recommend it. It certainly does not explain why Crawford found equipment left on shore, and it frankly strains credulity to suggest that after making an ocean voyage of hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles, a waterlogged hulk has washed ashore, presumably in a storm, in such a way that it avoided being dashed to pieces against Bouvet's cliffs and was left pretty much undamaged, then came to rest in the one spot on the coast of a small and remote island where it would not have been washed back out to sea again. It's not as if that part of the island's coast is knee-deep in flotsam and jetsam either. The men of the 1966 Biological Survey noted, quote, the absence of practically any washed-up marine life this exposed western side of the island, unquote. There's a third possibility that the boat might have come from an unknown ship that called at Bouvet between 1955 and 1964 and was, for some reason, abandoned there. This suggestion most convincingly explains the presence of the whaler. It is precisely the sort of general-purpose craft used to make a landing, and in fact, the Transvaal, when she called at Bouvet in 1955, had put her men briefly ashore in a very similar craft. If the abandoned boat had reached the island on a ship, moreover, there would have been no need for any implausible feat of navigation by its crew, and be in no doubt that a long voyage across the Southern Ocean in an open boat certainly is implausible, given the prevailing weather conditions. Ernest Shackleton's voyage from Elephant Island to South Georgia across 800 miles of the same seas is routinely lauded as one of the greatest of all feats of seamanship after all, and it was accomplished by men who were properly supplied, fully equipped, and who sailed, moreover, in an enclosed boat provided with the deck casing that prevented waves from slopping overboard. The suggestion that the abandoned boat had belonged to a landing party has another advantage. 
It explains the absence of bodies, a campsite, and significant quantities of equipment. Suppose, for example, that a group of men made a landing in two boats, but left the island in one, taking their gear and any bodies, I suppose, with them when they went. Or perhaps they landed in the boat and were later evacuated by helicopter. If the landing had taken place during the 1950s, moreover, it doesn't seem all that unlikely that five or six harsh Bouvet Island winters would have been sufficient to erase any names or other markings off that boat. Yet even this explanation, attractive though it is, has substantial holes in it. What sort of expedition would be planning to stay so long on the island that its men would go to the trouble of man-hauling a big boat into the lagoon? Crawford's team, after all, did what they needed to do in less than an hour. What sort of expedition goes ashore carrying a copper flotation tank? And what sort of expedition would be so poorly equipped that it was forced to improvise, while briefly on shore, by hammering flat the said tank? Indeed, the more one tries to think through this superficially attractive solution to the problem, the more questions it raises. Perhaps the most important one is this. Why would any shore party abandon such a valuable boat when they left? Whalers are pretty expensive items and need to be accounted for. Yes, one might suggest that the boat had to be left because of some sort of emergency, but if the weather was so bad that there was no possibility of launching it again, it would surely have also been too bad for any shore party to get off in a second boat or be evacuated by helicopter. And if one imagines, say, an accident that required the immediate hellebore evacuation of an injured man, leaving not enough men ashore to handle the boat, why would the party have taken all their usable equipment with them, but left a single pair of oars? Why not go back later for the oars and the whaler? Why indeed, if there was a helicopter available at all, land by boat in the first place? Well, that's the end of the story today. The mystery of Bouvet Island and the whaler that was there, then wasn't. How did it get there? What happened to the men that were in it? Or were there men in it? Bouvet Island is very much like the island that, I think it was Edgar Rice Burroughs, that wrote about in the land that time forgot, the island of Caprona, that nobody ever found it except by accident. And that's basically how they found this one. But we'll talk more about other stories that I've picked up, and we'll be back next week with some more information about these strange things. In the meantime, thank you for being with me. Thank you for listening. Remember on Mondays to listen to Aaron Hunter on the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. On Tuesdays, listen to Aaron Frail on Aaron's Horror Show. On Wednesdays, listen to me on Terry's Mysterious Moments. And also remember on the first Saturdays of the month, the Buried Secrets Paranormal broadcast, which is a video program. And they will sometimes have shorter segments that they can add in. So look for those. Keep your eye on the on the app. Remember, you can download that app from the Apple App Store or the Android App Store. And it's called the RPA app. You download that, install it into your phone or your tablets, 
You'll be able to find our shows without having to go searching for them. They'll be right there in front of you. Well, this is going to be Christmas Day when this airs, I hope. And as we used to say as kids, have a cool Yule and a frantic first. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is Terry from Texas. Have a great week, y'all. Bye.